This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 12, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has delivered relief to Geraldine Tyler, the woman whose home was seized by local government over unpaid taxes, where the government just kept the equity over what Ms. Tyler owed. What are the implications for government takings in the future? Cato's Tommy Berry details what the court said. Tommy, you and I have talked about the case of Tyler v. Hennepin County before. I happen to have an in-house expert on the practice of home equity theft here in my home who's filled my head with all of the technical details of how governments seize homes and keep the proceeds. The Supreme Court here, not really divided at all. You know, the, the bulk of this case, or at least the, the substance of the case, was decided overwhelmingly. Indeed, unanimously. We talked about this case three months ago. It was the last argued case of the term and decided very quickly, nine to nothing. This is the case of the 94-year-old woman in Minneapolis, Minnesota, whose condo was seized after she wasn't able to pay property taxes on it. She was behind by about 15000 The condo was sold for 40000 and the county took all of the money. So she was out about $25,000 more than she in fact owed. The county argued that under state law, this wasn't her property anymore. It belonged to the county under a, a law passed about 100 years ago. And the Supreme Court rejected that, not by a close vote, as you say, but by a unanimous vote, saying, no, the takings clause clearly applies here. This is her property by any common sense definition. And the county was trying to make sort of an attenuated argument that it was almost a shell game of trying to say, well, the property wasn't taken here, it wasn't taken here, it wasn't taken here. But at the end of the day, it doesn't belong to her anymore, and it doesn't matter that she had equity in it. Is that sort of what they were arguing? Exactly, yes. They were saying that it's really the state that kind of took the property or the state had passed the law that said this is no longer one's property once you fall behind on, on taxes and once the house is seized. So the county essentially said, we didn't take this property. It was by operation of state law. But of course, the state could also say, well, we didn't take this property. It's the county that actually seized it. But the Supreme Court rejected that argument and said, while property in general is defined under state law, there are limits. You can't simply pass a state law saying we now define equity as no longer your property in certain circumstances, because if they could do that, then the limitation on takings would be essentially a dead letter. It would be easy to simply avoid that by saying, oh, we're not taking your property, we're just redefining it as no longer your property. So the Supreme Court looked at more historical, more permanent attitudes towards property, went all the way back to Magna Carta, in fact, and saw that there is a consistent treatment of home equity, essentially whatever you own beyond your tax bill, that that had always been treated as one's own property. So let's understand takings more broadly, which is either a taking can be what it sounds like, which is the government taking your stuff, or it can be diminution of the value of the property on the open market, or even just your productive or non-productive use of the property. Is that about right? Yes, many different kinds of takings. There's the most explicit, the most obvious, where the government says, we need your land, we're going to take your house, and we're going to build something new on it. That's sort of the famous Kilo case is kind of the quintessential example of that. But in sometimes more common is when the state might say, you bought this beachfront property, this land, thinking you'd be able to build a house on it, we're going to change the rules. You can no longer build a house on this land. 
and it loses 95% of its value. And that's another situation where the Supreme Court has said constructively that's a taking. They've taken all you know, economic use out of the land that you expected when you bought it. It's not that the taking of the house was the problem. Tyler acknowledged that they could take the house to pay off her tax bill. It's the money above and beyond what she owed on taxes that's the problem. It's the 25000 above that 15000 that she owed that the state had to give back. And that's where the Supreme Court said, no, you can't just say, oh, close enough. And you can't just define it as we can take whatever we want. John Roberts, you know, they're always looking for lines to echo through the ages here. And his line was what taxpayers must render unto Caesar what is owed, but no more. Yes, exactly. Echoing the famous Bible line, render under Caesar's what is Caesar's and under God what is God's. He says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, but no more than that. So looking back at the Magna Carta, for example, which said, you know, it was immoral to take more than someone owed in taxes um, as, as punishment. And that ties in with a concurrence. As you said, it was unanimous. There was an addition, a concurrence by Justice Gorsuch joined by Justice Jackson that said, taking a look at this, it's pretty clear that this was in some ways punitive, that the point here is to incentivize people not to fall behind on their taxes. And so in all likelihood, this was a fine, a $25,000 fine that probably violated the excessive fines clause as well. So not only was this a taking that required compensation, it probably would have been struck down under the excessive fines clause if it hadn't also been a taking. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I will get in trouble at home for not knowing this, but the argument that this was, in addition to being a taking, was also an excessive fine, that was essentially the argument that the attorneys made from the Pacific Legal Foundation. Is that right? That's right. They made and preserved both arguments going all the way up to the Supreme Court. So they gave the Supreme Court two options to decide this case. And it's somewhat interesting the Supreme Court went the takings route. That was PLF's primary argument. And I think the Supreme Court agreed that in some ways that's the more obvious one. If they'd gone the excessive fines route, they would have had to make some new case law on how excessive is too excessive. And there's just not a lot of case law at the Supreme Court level on how to draw that line. So it was easier and cleaner for the Supreme Court to simply say whether or not this is excessive, I mean, it's clearly a taking. But that itself is an important precedent because it makes clear to states, no, you don't have complete carte blanche power to redefine property however you like for your own interests. In that concurrence, you have Justice Gorsuch and Justice Jackson making this argument. Does that tell you anything about how the two of them sort of are aligned? Because I predicted informally for a while that, that this is not going to be an uncommon occurrence, that the two of them in particular are going to agree on particular matters of law. We've seen them aligned in a few opinions already, concurrences and dissents. Uh, and the common thread throughout all of them is on the side of what you might call the little guy, uh, against against the government, situations where someone doesn't have a lot of resources might be caught up uh, in, in forces that are very difficult uh, to resist or to fight back against. And so I do think you're seeing an alliance of Gorsuch's libertarian instincts, Jackson's perhaps more progressive instincts, but they're completely aligned in situations here where you have vulnerable members of society who are really kind of being exploited for the sake of the government. In this situation, most of the people harmed by home equity theft are relatively older, vulnerable members of society who might own property for many, many years, but no longer have the resources to pay property taxes on it. 
Uh, so that this is a situation, and I hope we continue to see this coalition in the future, because I think it's stronger when both of them make the same point together. More broadly, this is a practice, this home equity theft is a practice that exists in a dozen or so states. It is not something that is broadly applicable across all states. Not all governments do this. But are there principles that have been drawn out here that we can make any kind of prediction about how they might be applied down the road? Yes. Well, I think after this opinion, we can say with quite a lot of certainty that this particular strategy, this home equity theft strategy, is now unconstitutional in those dozen states you mentioned that essentially have similar laws, because all of them rely on the same theory, that we can redefine property however we like, and we can redefine your home equity as no longer yours once you reach a certain date behind on your property taxes. If anyone challenges those in the future, this precedent is squarely on point. For other less on point or less squarely on point laws, I think this sets a more general precedent that states can't redefine property to try to get around the takings clause. So it's certainly exciting. I don't know necessarily what other types of laws might be challenged now with this precedent, but in any situation where a state says, we don't have to give you any compensation because by operation of state law, this became no longer your property once XYZ conditions were fulfilled, someone can challenge that and, and point to this Tyler decision and say, no, we can look back to history, we can look back to do you treat this as property in other legal contexts? And that can be more important than just how do you state define this in your own state law. Tommy Berry is editor-in-chief of the Cato Institute's annual Supreme Court Review. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>